Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hi, I'm Jason Comstock, and welcome to We Happy Few, the podcast that allows veterans and their families to tell their stories, stories that will cover a broad spectrum of lived experiences, from time and service to the return home and beyond. Experiences shared with the hope that all listeners will better understand the sometimes complicated lives of veterans and their families. Thank you for listening to We Happy Few. Hi, this is Amy Donaldson, and I'm the Vice President of Creative Development here at Loudmouth Project. I'm introducing today's episode because today you're going to hear a story from your host, Jason Comstock. Jason first told me this story a few years ago when we were running. I'm not exactly sure why he shared the story with me when he did, but I know it had a profound impact on me and my understanding of the long-term realities of service. I was on my way home from work one day. I see something on the right side of the road as I'm driving down the road in Pocatello, Idaho. I'm not sure what it is. It's off to the right-hand side of the road. And for some reason, I start to become afraid. I mean, I'm... I'm scared. My hands start to sweat. The hair starts to stand up on the back of my neck. And I find myself swerving to the left side of the road to avoid this thing. And I kind of speed up so they don't, so I don't get close to it. And I, I, you know, I don't know why I did that. Um, I'd been trained to do that in Iraq, but I wasn't in Iraq. I was in Pocatello, Idaho. And I remember getting home and thinking that that was weird. I don't know why that happened. And... And, you know, my wife had talked to me about maybe getting some help. She knew that something wasn't right. But I, I didn't want to listen to that. I didn't want to think that maybe I had a problem. What did your wife indicate that she <laughs> thought was the, the problem? I, um, first of all, I was yelling a lot. I know that. And I wasn't a very nice person. Uh, I was angry all the time. I um, had a couple situations where um, I got after my children probably stronger than I should have. Uh, I don't want to say that I was abusive. Uh, I think I scared him. Um, I didn't. I didn't hit him, but I would yell at him, um, and it was rough. It was rough on them, but I didn't. I didn't see it. I thought it was just fine. Everything was, you know, everything was fine. It was no big deal. I'd been home from Iraq for a year, so you know, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't matter. So I'm. When I get home, um, I think this thing is is weird, but I don't know what to do about it. It's like three blocks from my house. And so the next day when I drive to work, I actually go a different route. I don't even want to go buy this thing. I have no idea what it is. But for some reason, I'm worried that it might be a roadside bomb in Pocatello, Idaho, which doesn't really make any sense. So for a couple of days, I go a different route to work. I don't even go near this thing. But it really starts to bug me. I got to figure out what it is. I got to find out, you know. What's going on? What if it is? What if it is a roadside bomb and I don't do anything about it? What made this particular object on the side of the road different from other stuff on the side of the road? You know, that's a great question. I don't know. Um, When I was in Iraq, you know, we were trained, watch for roadside bombs in in trash. Now, 
I'm sure at one point Iraq was a beautiful country, but there's trash everywhere. I mean, it's literally everywhere. And and so this thing was standing out because now I'm in an American city and there really isn't trash everywhere. And so it was it was I remember it was red and it was just there by itself in the gutter. I don't know what I don't know really what made it different. I just know that I reacted to it. My body literally had a physical reaction to this thing. So the next day I after avoiding it, I try to drive that route again just see if it's still there cuz now I'm curious. And it's still there and once again I have the same reaction. My my hands start to sweat. I grip the steering wheel. I actually speed up a little bit, and I move again to the left side of the road so that I don't have to be close to this thing. And, of course, my training in Iraq was you move away from it. Uh, depending on the situation, you either contact the uh, ordnance disposal team or you post security and make sure nobody goes around it until the uh, EOD team or ordnance disposal team gets there. And so I, I found myself swerving away from this thing for the next couple of days. And finally, it, I mean, it just really got to me. It was really bugging me. I didn't know what to do. I was worried. There was no EOD for me to call in Idaho. And so I decided I got to check this thing out. Now, of course, again, my training was you report it and you move on with your mission or you report it and you post up security. I mean, that, that was all we ever did. And unfortunately, there were times when, when I remember groups would not follow that counsel and bad things would happen. And so, and so that's what we did. And so I am driving down the street, and I come up to this spot again, and I decide I've got I've to check it out. So I pull over just a little bit past it. I decide i got to walk up to this thing and, and see what it is. Well, well, let me stop you there. Why, why didn't you call the cops? That, well, well, that's a rational thought that, <laughs> that never occurred to me. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I don't know. For some reason, I had to be the one to figure this thing out. Uh, I remember as I as I got closer to it. First of all, I realized it's a small red zipper cooler. It's like a padded cooler, if that makes any sense. And and it's probably got somebody's lunch in it. And and I know that, but still, I have to find out for sure. You know, again, I'm I'm frightened. My hands are shaking. I'm worried that people that people are going to notice that I'm afraid. So now I'm ashamed at, at you know here I am a soldier, been home from Iraq for a year. And I'm worried that someone's going to notice that I'm, I'm frightened by some really silly situation, by some trash in the road. <laughs> and so I decide that I got to go check this thing out. So I very carefully walk up to this thing and, and I just kind of bump it with my foot. And, I, and I'm, I only think it's funny because, again, this goes against every training that I'd ever had. <laughs> you know, if this thing's an explosive, what's the last thing you should do? probably bump it with your foot. But, but because I think there's part of me that knows that that's not what this is, but there's part of me that's still not sure. And so I, uh, so I bump it with my foot, nothing happens. And then I very carefully uh, reach down and unzip it, only to find out that it really is just leftovers of somebody's lunch. That they've, they've, they just left, probably fell out of their car or something like that. And now I'm embarrassed and I'm, I'm upset with myself. I feel stupid because now I've realized that it I, I am in Pocatello, Idaho. I'm not in Iraq. You know, there's not a roadside bomb. And, and now I'm upset with myself. And at the same time, though, I start to, for me, I start to realize maybe maybe my wife's right. Maybe I need to talk to somebody. Maybe it's not okay that I'm yelling at my children, that I, that I think that their problems are so minor compared to the struggles that the world has when, of course, as you know, 10- and 11-year-olds, their problems are everything for them. But, but I wasn't seeing that until 
this happened and I realized, gosh, maybe she's right. Maybe I'm, maybe I need to talk to somebody. Maybe it's, I need to get some help. It sounds like you're, you were stuck between two worlds. Absolutely. Limbo. And the struggle too was, you know, when I got home from Iraq, we, uh, I went to work after I'd been home. Let's see. I think I was home for two weeks and then I went right back to work mostly because I needed the money. I didn't, wasn't, you know, independently wealthy or anything. And I thought that's what you were supposed to do. Uh, I probably should have taken more time to kind of unwind and get used to being home and, and get used to being in a family again. I mean, you think about it. While I was in Iraq, I didn't have any worries. I mean, it's really 90% boredom and 10% action. And, and so I didn't worry about bills because Letitia was taking care of that. I didn't worry about food because I just go over to the chow hall if I was hungry. I didn't worry about what I was going to do or, or what I was going to wear because there was always somebody there to tell you. And now suddenly I'm, I'm home and I'm in charge of my family and I'm you know, going right back to work, jumping in and, and, of course, just putting the best face I can on everything, that everything's fine and everything's good. Did you notice when you went back to work so quickly, did you feel uncomfortable or did you try to cover it not only from your coworkers but even from yourself? Oh, I totally think I tried to cover it for myself, you know, that kind of that avoidance thing that we do. And then everything's fine. You know, you put on a smile, you go to work, you do your job, and you go home at the end of the day. You know, it was, it was no big deal. And two, there's part of it for me. It was, I, I just come home from Iraq. I was a combat soldier. So suck it up and, you know, mission first. And of course, that doesn't always work. You know, sometimes coping with some of that, it's kind of like, I think it's, cope, you know, when you try to cope at the dentist, when the drill starts to hurt, you can only cope with that for so long. And I think the struggle that I was having, I thought I could, you know, muscle through and, and I just couldn't. And, uh, and so my wife, again, lovingly, you know, and she never gave me that ultimatum. I, I know from talking with her that she was starting to think some of those things, but she never said, if you don't go get help, I'm out of here. She just, she just very lovingly said, maybe you should talk to somebody. So I, go, I went and talked to somebody and they said, hey, you have post-traumatic stress. And you're struggling, so let's talk about this. And it was very helpful. It, it led to some other some other problems because I went went to counseling for about six months. The guy said, "Wow, you're doing really good. I'm not sure we need to visit anymore, but you're welcome to keep coming." And so I was like, "Sweet, I'm cured. I'm done. I can I can go away and and be happy, and and everything's going to be perfect." And of course, that's not the way post-traumatic stress or really any, any mental illness works. It's about figuring out how to manage it. It's really not about getting to the, to the cure, at least in my opinion. I think this is a great time to take a break and hear from the businesses that are making this podcast possible. If you support us and what we are doing, please support them. Hi, I'm Amy Donaldson. And I'm Jason Lee. Listen to our free podcast, Voices of Reason, unless you enjoy screaming matches. Nope, you're not going to hear that with us. You'll hear folks who may disagree, but seek to understand different views. That's Voices of Reason on the KSL Radio app or wherever you find interesting podcasts. So that, so that went on for probably about 10 years, and then I started to find myself struggling again. But this time, instead of being angry, I found myself being fearful of everything. I was doubting myself. I was never good enough. I was never going to be as strong as I thought I was supposed to be. And one of these days, my boss was going to find out at where I was working. I was working in IT. was going to find out that I was a phony or something, you know. That was, I mean, that was the real worry that I had. And so 
again with uh, my wife's encouragement. This time I went to the VA and got involved with their with their mental health program and 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 went to therapy again and did some incredible stuff with them that that I don't think I was was prepared for or, or even knew what was going to happen. But it was it was so helpful because it again kind of put things back into perspective because they tend to get a little bit out of whack. Again, I'm, you know, I've got this experience. I'm an Army veteran. I should be tough enough to do whatever. Sometimes you have to get help. Yeah, I think that that's a common theme mm-hmm. that, especially for veterans, is don't complain. You're going to pay that's for right. it. That's right. You know, yeah. so that translates over into post-military sure. uh, life. And, you know, that, that stuff also plays into a lot of things that the civilian population deals with, too. There's mm-hmm. a lot of crossover. Absolutely. Well, and, and I think, too, the thing that I found is I started to expect that of my family from whether my children or, or even my wife. Hey, suck it up. we got to get the job done. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what, you know, what's going on right now. It's, you know, it's mission first kind of a thing. And, and that doesn't always work. And sometimes it doesn't work in the military, but, but sometimes uh, that's, you know, I, maybe that's the only option. I don't know. But it was really, it was very interesting. It was, it really caused me to realize, you know, I thought, I, like I said before, with the experience in Pocatello, Idaho, I thought I was home. I thought I was done. In fact, at this point, I'm not even in the military anymore. And I realized that, that maybe I wasn't completely home yet. Maybe I hadn't kind of figured that part out. For me, that was kind of the turning point to realize maybe something's not right. And again, I still had more learning to do, and I still have more learning to do. But, but it was kind of the, the, it was the point where I finally realized maybe it's okay to go talk to somebody. Maybe it's okay to realize that I can't do this by myself. How hard was that? Well, that was, that was really hard. I mean, I, I think, uh, and I don't want to be stereotypical, but, you know, like most, most men uh, um, don't go to the doctor. You know, they wait till it gets really bad. And I think that's kind of the situation that I was in. You know, I wasn't, I didn't want to go talk to somebody. What, what is that guy going to know about my experience? It took a lot. It was hard to finally sit down with somebody and say, something's not right. And then to work with a professional, really, to help me articulate some of that stuff. Because that was the hardest part. It was, I couldn't figure out, really, I didn't know what was wrong. I just knew it wasn't right. And so, you know, they really helped me kind of put into words some of those things that I was feeling. So going to get help is one thing. Mm-hmm. Accepting the help is another. Oh, yeah. So did it take you a while to, I mean, did you go in there for a few appointments and just kind of glad hand the dude and nod? Yeah. And yeah. And so I did that. Like I said, I did it for six months. Did what the guy said. I did my homework. I was, you know, very, I'm sure I was a very good patient. I don't know. But, you know, you fast forward 10 years. Thankfully for me, I had good friends who said, you know, maybe you should go talk to somebody. Don't be afraid to go talk to somebody. And so this time I went to the VA, and of course, I think the VA for treating post-traumatic stress, I don't think you'll find anybody better. And they really were very kind, and they said, yeah, hey, it's not a new... In fact, it was interesting, because I remember the first time I walked into the VA, the first thing, the first meeting I had was this big group session, and there was like 10 people in there, some from Korea, some from Vietnam, some from Desert Storm, some from Afghanistan, some from Iraq, and I, and I realized first, wow... Okay, I'm not alone. And then maybe it wasn't so bad to to get help. Maybe it wasn't so bad to admit that I'm not 100%. I got to I got to get this figured out. And so going to the VA was ultimately, you know, the the best help because now if something starts to go sideways, I know I can go I know where to do, I know what to do. I can call them and say, "Hey, something's not right. I got to talk to somebody." And they're more than happy to help me get that appointment and and get in to see somebody. So, do you think being 
surrounded or amongst veterans was a key component to successful treatment as opposed to doing it with yeah. people with PTSD that aren't veterans? So so that's a great question. So I think, again, going back, when I was in Pocatello, I was just on my own. There wasn't a whole lot of veterans around. And so I didn't really have – it's not really comparing myself. I didn't really have anybody to, to kind of bounce ideas off of or say, hey, what's going on? How are you doing? I didn't have anybody to say I understand, and and some of the struggles that I was having, I wasn't even sharing with my wife. I didn't, I wasn't sharing memories or or things that had happened, you know, in any detail with my family because I didn't want them to know how how rough things were at different times. So going to the VA and surrounding myself with with veterans really helped because there was a common language. We could, you know, you know, hey, what's your MOS? You know, someone's going to know. Oh, we're, he's talking about whatever job it was that he did. And so that really helped because you start to realize here's some people that on the outside look very strong. They look like they got their stuff together, and yet they're willing to be here and talk to someone and maybe get some help. And so for me, that was a huge help to realize, okay, I'm not alone. You know, I think sometimes when we get depressed or get discouraged, we assume that we are the only person that has ever felt this before. And the reality was there was a lot of people that, that were having similar struggles. And so it was great to be able to be there and not to, not to, you know, swap stories or anything, but just to realize that there's somebody else who's having a similar struggle and maybe even a worse struggle than I'm having. So, so how are you doing now? I think every day you got to look at the map and fib- figure out where you are. And figure out where you're going. Um, I'm doing a lot better. I've got a lot of great friends who understand. And when I'm having a bad day, because I've surrounded myself with good people, I can tell my wife, hey, something's not right today. Something's off. Um, I can tell my friends, hey, I don't know what's going on, but something's off. And, and then, you know, we'll, we'll go, you know, get a, go get a soda or something, or we'll go get a hamburger, or we'll just get together and, again, be reminded that, that I don't have to do all this alone. And then also knowing that because I've got a relationship now with the VA, I can call them and say, things aren't, aren't very good. Can I talk to somebody? And, and they're very helpful. If you or any veteran you know is feeling self-destructive or suicidal, please don't hesitate to use the Veterans Crisis Line by either calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1 or by texting 838-255 or by visiting www.veteranscrisisline.net. This 24-7 confidential service is for all veterans, all service members, the National Guard and Reserve, their family members, and their friends. Join us again for the next episode of We Happy Few. If you have comments about the show, please contact us by email at tips at loudmouthproject.com or on Twitter at loudmouthjason. Check out our website at loudmouthproject.com and navigate to the We Happy Few page. You can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on Google Podcast, iTunes, and other places where you find interesting shows. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps grow our audience. We would like to thank our producer and editor, Josh Tilton, and our creative director, Amy Donaldson, for adding the spit and polish to our show. I'm Jason Comstock, and until next time, Keep listening, keep learning, and stay engaged. We Happy Few is a production of the Loudmouth Project.